Welcome to the Transition Bridge Podcast, the podcast that will help you embrace, grow, and be transformed by the transitions of life. Now here's your host, Debbie Ronka. Welcome to the Transition Bridge Podcast. I'm Debbie Ronka, your host, and thank you for being with me here today. Before I start, I just want to take a moment to say how grateful I am for all of you for the time you give to listen, and for your hearts to share with others who may need the very message that each episode brings forth. Today's episode, I believe, is going to be one of those that you're going to want to share with so many people. I have with me today Johnny Crowder, and we are talking about mental health. Johnny's story is powerful, and it will bring so much hope and inspiration for those who struggle in all of the different spaces of mental health. Johnny Crowder is a suicide abuse survivor, TEDx speaker, billboard charting heavy metal musician, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, a text-based mental health platform that provides daily support to users in nearly 100 countries around the world. But in the years leading up to these incredible leaps in advocacy, every day was a battle against schizophrenic hallucinations and suicidal ideation. After a lifetime of resisting professional care and shying away from sharing his story, Johnny's curiosity flowered and the healing slowly began. Johnny's armed with 10 years of clinical treatment, a psychology degree from the University of Central Florida, and a decade of peer support and public advocacy through the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Johnny's youthful energy for mental health has impacted millions of lives across the globe. Even when commanding a virtual stage or touring with his metal band prison, his infectious positivity and firsthand experience with mental illnesses that range from bipolar disorder, PTSD, and even to OCD and beyond, it uniquely equips him to provide realistic yet hopeful insight to the pains of hardship with authenticity, levity, and unconventional wit. His refreshing, vulnerable, and candid perspective has attracted praise from hundreds of outlets, including Upworthy, CNN, and Forbes. Johnny, welcome to the Transition Bridge Podcast. I'm really honored to have you with me here today. And I know your message is one of personal struggle, but also of powerful breakthrough. And the world literally just needs to hear you. So I know it's a a massive story. So I guess my, I have two questions. When did you first in your life, like what age were were you when you realized you were actually struggling with mental health issues? And what really caused you to resist for so long any professional help? So I think the difference, there's a different age between when I realized I was having a challenge with my mental health. And then when I admitted to myself that it was mental health, if that makes sense. So I knew that I was struggling probably in elementary school. So I was self-harming as a toddler. I was hallucinating in, in grade school, but I didn't really chalk that up to mental health. 
um, I thought I was different. You know, my parents were like, well, maybe he's just, uh, everybody has imaginary friends and he's just going through a phase and all of that. Um, and I definitely bought into that because number one, I wasn't educated on mm -hmm. mental health. And number two, I had some stigma inside of me, self stigma that said, well, I'm not like those bipolar people. I'm not like those schizophrenic people. And that's how I used to talk. So I knew I was struggling, wouldn't be honest with myself or even I didn't even comprehend that it was related to mental health until probably around high school when I started taking psychology courses. And this oh. is, I think I'm such a huge proponent of health education because there are people right now listening to this podcast who say, oh, I don't have depression. And it's like, oh, have you ever learned about depression? And they're like, no, I think I have a pretty good idea of what it is. And I'm pretty sure I don't have it. And it's like, no, man, I encourage people to educate themselves because that ultimately allowed me to start participating in my treatment. So my stigma kept me away. My ignorance kept me away from treatment. My ignorance kept me lying to myself about what I was going through. And then as I started learning, I was like, whoa, not only can I give shape to what I'm going through, but I can also do something about it. And that's incredible to hear that even as a toddler, you were self-inflicting pain that I never even considered a toddler struggling with mental illness. I, I'm learning, I'm going to learn a lot today because I typically think it's, you know, maybe something from teenage years into adult, you know, when you're struggling for identity and things are good. But as a child, um, and you know what, you can't, you can't break that down because nobody understands anything when they're a little kid, right? Yeah. Oh my! I've, I've gone to speak because um, I do a lot of mental health advocacy now, and I've gone to speak at elementary schools um, to students. And the youngest grade I've ever spoken to was second grade, oh. and that's tough. I've done high school; I can I can swing that. I've done middle school; I can swing that. When you start getting into fourth and fifth grade, the comprehension level there, there's kind of a difference there. And then speaking to second graders, I was like, man, how do I boil this down into? basic emotions, like feeling frustrated, feeling angry, feeling sad. And I was almost like, it, it was a challenge to translate what I know to be true through going to college for psychology into these very basic human emotions. But what will surprise you is every kid knows what those feelings feel like. Oh, they do. And, you know, these just aren't like feelings that happen for like a week or so. This is a, a, something that's continual. It becomes mm -hmm. like a, a, a huge struggle. Like you you can't control it. Is that the idea? Yeah. So I'm trying to remember some of the phrases that we use, but it was kind of like basically imagine. Do you remember a time when you were sad? Now, imagine being even sadder than that but for longer. So how long were you sad? And someone might say, oh, the afternoon or the whole day. And I say, imagine that, but for months and months and maybe even years. So kind of taking something that they understand and translating it. But looking back, I know that that's an oversimplification, but imagine if someone were to come to me when I was experiencing those symptoms and I was in second grade, and if someone said, oh, sadness that lasts years i i know what that feels like and i'm mm -hmm. i'm eight years old and i know what that feels like so i needed someone to put it into terms that i understood and i think if someone were to come to me to explain diagnoses 
like bipolar one, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't understand it. But if someone used words like sadness and anger, I would be like, oh, I know what that means. I'm really glad you shared that because the one thing I think of is, especially when you were just saying like bipolar or like you felt like you had this stigma about yourself, there's like potentially shame attached to that. So we don't want to even recognize or bring that out because that's what shame does. It just is like a blanket that covers you and it keeps you hidden. So do you think that's part of the story as well? So for me, shame was huge. I had this idea that if I looked normal enough, that hopefully people wouldn't ask me how I'm doing because Um. I didn't want to tell them. I didn't want to tell them the truth because I was ashamed. And I didn't want to lie because I didn't want to lie to people at all. I didn't like the idea of being dishonest. So I figured, why don't I just look okay? Why don't I put a smile on, right? Why don't I, you know, put gel in my hair, iron my shirt or whatever I was doing in in middle school. Um, And hopefully if I look okay enough, then people won't stop to ask me how I'm feeling. And I didn't realize how limiting that shame was. I figured that if I ever did open up to people about what I was going through, I would be ostracized. People wouldn't want to hang out with me. And when you're in middle school, the idea of being kicked out of the tiny little friend group that you've been able to put together is one of the scariest things in the world because your whole world is that little microcosm of your social circle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like a community that you need, but you're not even sure how you fit into the community. Mm-hmm. And I I could see like you're like you had your own little defense system built in to be mm-hmm. able to to protect yourself. And that had to be exhausting, especially when internally you felt the complete opposite of what your countenance, your face was showing. You had to be exhausted. Yeah. Whenever people tell me like, wow, I don't know how you have the strength to do advocacy. I'm like, strength? Do you realize how much harder it is to lie all the time? It is so much easier to tell the truth. But when I was pretending that I was okay, I I swear I used 10 times as much energy pretending than I do now just telling the truth. Oh, truth sets you free, right? Such a a release. (laughs) Oh, man. So, okay, so Johnny, can you can you uh, share some transparency with us here? So our those who are listening can you know find areas that they could relate? Like, can you tell us the the deep struggle of what you were going through in that you know middle school, high school? Um, you know, I, I know it's painful, but are you able to enlighten us in any way? Yeah, I had a lot of different challenges. So I'll I'll just highlight a couple of my different diagnoses. So um, pretty severe social anxiety, which meant that I wasn't comfortable starting conversations, holding conversations, meeting new people, making eye contact. Um, OCD meant that I couldn't step on cracks. I couldn't shake people's hands. I couldn't sit near windows or touch doorknobs. I couldn't touch my own food. I couldn't sit with people at lunch. And then Schizophrenia made my speech disordered, um, made some of my thoughts incoherent. So each diagnosis kind of had its own effect on my behavior and the way I related with the world to the point where 
to top it all off, my depression made it feel like nothing would ever get better anyway. So here I am in my preteen and teenage years figuring my entire life is going to be like this. Why even continue living? Why bother to see what tomorrow is going to feel like when I think I already know it's going to be more of this? And so I could see why a person who would have like suicidal ideation going on, like that hopelessness, that continual downward spiral of not seeing anything change. That is such a battle for the soul. That is such a battle for the soul. And yeah, that just breaks my heart. And, you know, as I am listening to you, I can see where parents, based on like what you say, would say, oh, don't be so shy. Mm -hmm. You know, people may see children, oh, they're just being shy, but there could be a big, a deeper issue there. Yeah, there's also this mentality that like, um, you know, teenage angst, like he's just this brooding, pimply teenager and everybody goes through that phase. And I know exactly what that was like. I think, you know, I'm a huge proponent of peer support. I, I think it's mm -hmm. extremely valuable and being able to empathize with somebody through your lived experience. I don't mean to diminish that. But at the same time, I think sometimes we can say, Ah, I know what that feels like. Ah, I've been through something like that before. Oh, it's just going through a breakup. Or it's probably, I've heard parents say, it's probably just girls. It's oh. <laughs> just girls? Like, what are you thinking? If I, I just, I think it comes from a good place, which is, number one, we want to relate to other people. So we just mm -hmm. kind of, when we see someone behave a certain way, we figure it's probably similar to my experience. But then the other side of it is it's almost like this protection where, you know, I look back and I look at um, my parents and they probably were in relative denial about what I was going through in part because they're like, well, I must be a good parent. And if something is quote wrong with my son, then that could mean that I'm not a good parent. Or if my son lives with a mental illness and it could have a genetic component, does that mean that I then have to look at my own mental illness? No way. I don't want to do all that. So I completely understand the mechanisms that keep people from investigating deeper, but they can also be harmful. That idea that, you know, teenagers are just angsty. It's like, dude, if you aren't talking with that teenager about what they're going through and they're not telling you they don't have an opportunity to share what's going on then you probably are pretty off base in your assumption that it's not serious so let's talk to the parents about that because you know teenage years that's a that's one of the toughest transitions i think in life for kids because every year in that teenage year brings just something else that they have to discover about themselves, something else to confront. So what advice would you give to any parents that would be listening? Like what symptoms should they look for? Like, you know, I would think of isolation being one of the key ones, but what should they look for to, so they can possibly consider maybe this is a mental health issue? So I want to start by saying a few things. Number one, y'all already know I'm not a doctor. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. And number two, I'm not a parent, which means that most parents don't want to hear from me about what I have to say, but I can't, okay. tell you, 
I can tell you, even though I don't have a kid, I was a kid and I know you were too. So from my perspective, what I think would have been helpful for me to have people watch out for is basically patterns and habits that are being interrupted. So let's say hypothetically, um, I hang out with my friends every Thursday and then I miss a Thursday. Oh, it's okay. Stuff comes up. And then I miss the next Thursday and I miss the next Thursday. That's a pattern that's been interrupted. Or let's say I used to get up at 9 a.m. on Saturdays to go outside and play basketball. And then one weekend I wake up at 10, one weekend I wake up at 11, and all of a sudden those things aren't important to me. This could be because my interests are changing. Maybe my friends groups are changing, but if you don't ask, you don't know. And when I was feeling really depressive and reclusive, I didn't actually have legitimate reasons for why I wasn't doing those things I did before that were related to the task. It was more related to my relationship to the task. I was falling out of love with my friends with my hobbies. And it wasn't because those things changed. It was because something inside of my brain was changing and making everything gray. So if I were a parent and I had a son or daughter that I was curious about their behavioral health, I wanted to keep an eye on something, I would want to keep keep an eye out for any pattern interruptions. What would be a good question like when you were going through that was there something that you wish your parents asked you? You know, it's really tough. I didn't have a great relationship with my parents growing up. So I didn't want to hear anything from my parents. I wanted them to just leave me alone. Um, But I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of a way that it could have been worded that I would have actually opened up. But I think sometimes that's the wrong approach. At least looking back, I would have been more moved. Like if one of my parents said, Hey, what's going on? What's going on with you? Are you, what are your, are you okay? What are your moods? Like I would not have wanted to engage because I didn't feel that we had a good relationship in the first place. So I think if my parents would have made a decision to invest in the integrity of the relationship, then I would have felt more open to talking to them about those things in the first place. So Some parents are like, how do I get my son to tell me the truth about what he's experiencing? And I'm like, when's the last time you spent time with your son on purpose? Like took him to a basketball game or um, went out to see a movie or stayed home and made dinner or ordered pizza and hung out or watched a movie or whatever. When's the last time you intentionally hung out with and invested in the relationship with your son? So for me, I think if I would have had parents that I had healthy relationships with, I would have maybe even voluntarily disclosed what I was going through. The thing that kept me quiet in large part was the fact that we weren't close in the first place. You know, that trust factor that we have to have with our parents. You're so wise in saying that. It's so true. Um, I used to mentor moms and I used to always tell, tell them, play with your children. And don't stop playing with them because trust me, when they grow up and leave home, they're going to come back and want to play with you. (laughs) It's true because like my, my kids are older. They'll come home and it's like, Hey, let's go play tennis. Hey, let's, 
do this. Like we want to hang out because you, if you have to invest the time for your children to want to come back. So for any parents that are out there, yeah, it's a good time. Just invest in them. Let them know that you love them by spending time and let them know what you value, love and celebrate about them because we all want to know our life has value. And I think that's one of the greatest things we could do as human beings, one to another, and also in particular parents to children, because you're raising the next generation. And if they don't hear from you, they'll find it somewhere else. So that's my shout out to parents today. Mm. Be, the, be the source of your children's, the, the words that he or she will hear that come from you that say, who they are, what their value is, what you love and celebrate, recognize them for who they are. And I, I can tell you that they are seeds that will come back and bless your life later. Because when you sow like that, it just builds relationship. And so thank you for sharing that, Johnny, because I think it is important. Invest in the relationship so the trust is there, so you have a safe place to go to. So where did you finally when when was your big turning point in life when did you start turning around who did you find to confide in and what what did all that look like yeah my um my whole first ted talk is about how i never had that moment um i think a lot of people want to know that like what was the turning point what was the aha moment the eureka the eureka moment and we, I think we want everyone's story to be very like, um, to make a good story, like in Hollywood, like in a book or a TV show or a movie, we, there's that moment. And we're like, what was that moment like? But at least for me, in my experience, life is not that binary. Like I, I didn't have this like, oh, um, it was actually really slow and gradual and frustrating and nonlinear. Like some, sometimes I would go days or weeks of getting better. And then I would go days or weeks of getting worse. And I just want to first point out before I share how things are different and what helped me, I just want to say that if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I, I haven't had my Eureka moment, or I haven't had my turning point moment. It's like, that's fine. You, lots of people don't have that. You, of course you hear miraculous stories of people who have great, you know, narratives to their lives, but not everyone's life is easy to wrap up into a bow like that. So I just want to encourage anybody who's listening and they're like, I haven't had that moment yet. Like, dude, me neither. I'm like over a decade into my recovery and I haven't had that moment either. So it's been lots of tiny little moments that have steered me in the right direction. So just don't, anyone who's listening, just don't overlook those. Those still matter. So there were little moments where, you know, I would be um, I used to walk my dog, um, in my old neighborhood. And there were sometimes I would walk my dog down to the water and the water looked gray and bleak and dreary. And I felt defeated. And then some days I would walk and I was like, Oh, I think the water looks kind of pretty today. And I was like, Whoa, hang on to that. Hang on to that for dear life. And so I, I almost like had to start making a um, keeping a, a checklist of those moments to build, I, I wanted to stack them so that I could rely on them as an evidence base that life wasn't as, as ugly as I felt like it was. And eventually 
Um, I think one of the biggest components of my recovery has been health education. Taking psychology courses opened me up to considering participating in my own recovery and treatment and taking my therapist seriously and and actually taking my medication when my doctor said to take it, the exact dosage that my doctor said. So it was all this like, it was a, a trillion tiny little moments that led to this gradual change. And over time, I started becoming less of a judge of myself, mm-hmm. wagging my finger saying, oh, you're so negative and you're such a this is, you're sick, you're ill, you're mentally ill, you're just so screwed up in the head. And I I used to talk to myself like that. And over time, slowly, I started gaining a better understanding of what I was experiencing that allowed me to show myself compassion and go, oh, buddy, it's not fair that you're experiencing this stuff. And I want to work with you to get through it. So really, it was a combination of health education and slowly choosing to be a more active participant in my recovery and honestly, a, a better friend to myself. That is so, so beautiful what you shared. It all comes down to that step of courage, like just take a step, right? And it, even if it's little, at least you're moving forward and you may be dragging yourself, but you're moving forward. And I have a a dear friend, when you said the word compassion, it just hit me because that, I believe, is really what the world is desperate for and every soul longs for. You know, when you're in those dark places, it's the compassion that could really give you that place to come forward. She has a quote that her parents raised her by, and it, it says, compassion turns Oh, I hope I get it. Turns thorns into flowers. Compassion turns vinegar into wine. I just think that has so much truth. So I have this quote here. It says, emotional pain is not something that should be hidden away and never spoken about. There is truth in your pain. There is growth in your pain, but only if it's first brought out into the open. And it sounded to me like that's what you were just sharing. There's been growth in your pain. It's been a 10-year journey, but you're on the journey. And it's not an overnight fix. And it's not something to give up on. Yeah, I think the most liberating thing that I've ever learned about the brain is that it can change. Like learning about neuroplasticity and knowing Mm -hmm. that I'm not doomed to have this sick, ill dysfunctional brain forever i used to i used to despise my brain and now i go to great lengths to take care of it and it's all because i found out that it can change if i thought i was stuck with this brain forever and it was just it was stuck with this you know disordered speech and um incoherent thought patterns and negativity and spite and anger and sadness if i felt like that was the way my brain was going to be forever i would not choose to continue living the learning about the science behind how the brain can change and learn and grow is so liberating because it just opens up this possibility that next month next year, next decade, you might not 
think the same way. You might not feel the same way. And for me, that's worth sticking it out for. Can you just share with us like a brief synopsis of some of the techniques that you use to help change the neuroplasticity I know is, is, is huge. And so maybe if you can just share a little bit about that. Yeah, like, so I, did, I, I studied this in school at length. Um, and my my first TED talk has a lot of neuroscience in it. So we talk a lot about like how the brain forms new habits. And um, honestly, it's the reason why I run my company now, Coke Notes. Like our whole job is training people to think in healthier thought patterns and providing that daily support. And really the, the most effective thing that I've found is interruption. If you interrupt a negative thought pattern with a catalyst for positive thought, that is, if you could pick something that I'm most passionate about, it would be that. And really the way to think about it is you can think about the synapses in your brain um, as people, and you can think about a thought as a Frisbee. So whenever you think a thought, a synapse shoots a charge across a cleft to another synapse. So basically it's like two people throwing a Frisbee back and forth. And you can think of an interruption as maybe a dog jumping up and catching that Frisbee midair. So what happens over time is as synapses, as people are throwing Frisbees back and forth, the more often they do that, they take a few steps closer to each other so they don't have to throw the Frisbee quite as far. And they do that over and over again. But the challenge is that happens even with negative thoughts. doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative. If you think the thought often enough, the people take a few steps closer so they don't have to throw the Frisbee as far because they know they're going to have to throw that Frisbee again later. So each time you interrupt that pattern, you have a dog jump up and snatch that Frisbee out of the air the people get frustrated and they go, why the heck are we standing this close together when every time we throw it, the dog's going to catch a Frisbee anyway. And they start taking steps further apart instead. So this is a very strange way of explaining how your synapses grow further apart and closer together based on how cooperative you are with the thoughts. So at Cope Notes, we're in the business of interrupting negative thoughts because we know if we do that often enough, your brain will start to prioritize positive thoughts instead. I'm so glad you brought Cope Notes up because, you know, tell if this is an app, this is something uh, that is your business. So tell everyone, how does that work? Like an average, the person who actually signs up for this app, what, what, what do they get during the day? Yeah. The, um, also, I want to clarify that one of the best things about Cope Notes is that it's not an app. Oh, so you, I'm sorry. I thought it was. It's okay. It's I love talking about this part. You don't have to download anything. There are no software updates. I mean, it's it's as simple as can be. We literally just send text messages at random times. And those messages are written by peers with lived experience. And they contain psychology facts, journaling prompts, exercises. They're all reviewed by mental health professionals to make sure that they'll actually make a positive impact on your brain. But the really cool part is that because no two people ever get the same text at the same time, and because you never know when we will text you or what the text will say, these messages act as that dog jumping up and catching that automatic negative thought frisbee. So we consistently interrupt negative thought patterns. And over time, it, it trains the brain to think in healthier patterns. We literally, we've done studies that have shown 
that Coke Notes reduces depression, reduces anxiety, reduces stress with just one randomly timed text message per day. It sounds too simple to work, but we have the science that shows that it works. Well, and you're using the power of words. You're using the kind of words that are bringing life or changing thought patterns. I mean, how could that not work? <laughs> That's, I love it. That's brilliant. So what have some of your, uh, should I call them clients? What would you call them? What has been it's some of their response? I'm yeah. sorry. We say subscribers. Subscribers. Okay. So how, what are some of the responses or reactions? Dude, I can't even believe some of that. I mean, we screen cap them every day and share it with our team internally. Some of the things like, you know, we serve tens of thousands of people all over the world, 97 countries. We have users in 97 countries and they'll, they'll text us back and, and write us emails and fill out the contact form on our website that that kind of share the the impact that these messages have had on them. And they are unbelievable. We have people who say they're only still alive because of a Cope Notes text message. Oh. It ended a suicide attempt. We have people um, saying that it uh, saved their marriage. It reunited them with lost, uh, not lost, estranged siblings. So people that they haven't spoken to in years, they're now getting back in touch with. We have people who have moved to a different country, people who have um, gone to school after thinking that they missed the boat and that they would never be able to go to college. Um, we have people who are getting sober because of a Coke Notes text message. Like you, you, if you go to copenotes.com and you look at the reviews, you will cry te real tears reading through these stories of people whose lives have been transformed by just a few sentences. I was just going to ask you, how do people find these Cope Notes? So absolutely, everyone who's listening, copenotes.com. This sounds incredible. This sounds incredible. This must bring you so much joy knowing the difference it is making in people around the world and just relationally, generationally as well. It is, it is hands down the hardest job I've ever had. Um, and it is hands down the most rewarding job I've ever had. Oh, I'm really proud of you for all you've come through, for all Thank the decisions so that you have made to move forward. I did listen to one of your TED Talks when you were on the plane, and I won't say yeah. any more, but I, I would just say everyone needs to, to go listen to that. It, it's incredible. So I, I have to ask you, because I know you're passionate about this. I don't, are you still involved with your metal band prison? Yeah, so we we actually just got back from tour um, at the time of this recording. We just got back like a week ago, um, and we have a new single coming out in a couple months. Um, we're playing some more shows coming up. So it's music has been a part of my life. I played my first concert when I was 16 years old, um, and I just turned 30. So it's been a part of my life for half my life. I've been touring full time for over a decade. So I've done you know, Lord knows how many full U.S. tours, um, been to pretty much every city and state you can think of. And um, just sharing advocacy through heavy metal is like one of the coolest ways to do it, in my opinion. Well, you know, I think it just reaches people that are sometimes unreachable, like they'll just mm -hmm. relate to that music. And I, I was actually looking at um, some of your songs last night, and I noticed that you had come to Texas. That's where I, I'm from. And so I was oh, like, yeah. oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we have a live in Texas album. Uh -huh. that, that is so cool. Sometimes I forget about that. 
Yeah, I was looking at that last night. I went, look at that live in Texas. <laughs> That's great. Well, I would like just uh, end the podcast with this thought or a, uh, an opportunity for you. I want you to take a moment and share your heart with someone who could be listening right now who's struggling with mental illness and really needs hope. They need some encouragement. Can you speak to them about what you feel their heart and mind needs to hear right now? What would be your message? Yeah, I would say two things. I would say, number one, um, the world would not be a better place if you weren't here. Um, and it would not be the same. It wouldn't be better and it wouldn't be the same. It would actually be worse. The world would be a worse place if you were not here, because believe it or not, people like you and depend on you and look forward to seeing you. They like sharing things with you. They like seeing you and talking to you. Um, and if they haven't shared that lately, maybe it's because they're nervous or awkward or they don't know how to word it, but there really are people who feel that way about you. And the second thing that I want to share is you're already further along than you're in your recovery than you think you are. And here's how I know, because you just spent 40 minutes of your time on this planet listening to a conversation about mental health and recovery. So you're already further than you think because most people wouldn't do that. And you're not most people. There's something inside of you that knows that things can get better, that knows that you can feel healthier and that you're not stuck the way you are forever. And I'm so excited about that. That's worth celebrating. Like, as soon as this podcast recording ends, I want you to follow this up to chase this with something else positive, something else related to mental health. Read an article, watch a TED talk, listen to a song that makes you feel better, listen to another episode of this podcast, but do something that continues to feed the part of you that's hungry for a healthier you. That's great advice. And I come from a, a faith-based background, and I would like to just add this thought too, that no matter how dark there is hope, don't believe the lie that it's hopeless. Don't believe the lie that no one understands. Don't believe the lie that your life has no value because the lie is trying to prevent you from finding the truth so that you can live out your life the way you were created to live. And Johnny, I highly recommend that you connect with him because he's been there. He knows, he understands, he has a team that can help. This is a safe place. You have a heart that will listen to you and be able to help you take that next step. And I just want to share this one quote in closing. You know, we all loved Mr. Rogers. Remember the movie? And I found this quote by him and it says, as human beings, our job in life is to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is that each of us has something that no one else has or ever will have, something inside that is unique to all time. It is our job to encourage each other to discover that uniqueness and to provide ways of developing its expression. And I believe that's what you're doing, Johnny Crowder. 
You're finding the people that need to know their lives have value and purpose, and the world would not be the same without them. So I just want to bless you in what it is that you are doing now with your life. And I just am so greatly encouraged to know that there is a young voice out there who wants to reach the world and really make a difference and save lives, save lives. Is there anything else you'd like to share in closing? Just thanks for having me and a quick plug for my projects. Sure. If you want Cope Notes for free, go to copenotes.com. If you want to watch my TED Talks, you can search me on YouTube, Johnny Crowder. Um, if you want to listen to my band, it's called Prison. We have a record called Still Alive that I think you might like. We're on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, wherever you listen to music. And then also, if you're a podcast person, we have a podcast called The Cope Notes Podcast, and we interview you know, musicians, barbers, nannies, priests, all sorts of different people about their experience with mental health conditions and how they manage those symptoms on a daily basis. So if you're interested in giving that a listen, I think you might dig it. I think you will, because I listened to it and I actually liked it a lot. <laughs> this was really cool. So yes, thank you so much. And I also will have Johnny's, all of his contact information in my show notes. Please reach out. This is a, a valuable resource for all who are listening and for everyone who is listening. If you have a loved one, you know someone who's struggling with mental illness, please share this episode so they can hear about what Johnny is doing and find this could be the answer. This could be the answer you've been praying about, looking for. It's here, right here. So reach out to Johnny. And I want to thank all of you for gathering with me today where we just come together as a tribe to embrace, grow, and be transformed by the purpose and power of transitions. Thank you for joining us today on the Transition Bridge Podcast. We appreciate you. If you enjoyed listening today, please go ahead and subscribe or review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And for more information about Debbie, go to DebbieRonka.com. That's D-E-B-I-R-O-N-C-A dot com.